A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Welcome to the Second Age Podcast. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. I'm John, and this is Chapter 4, The Rings of Power. In this episode, we've got three segments for you. We've got a discussion of Tolkien's impact on the genre of modern fantasy, the discussion of the themes of the desire to dominate and the importance of the intent to create, and a deep dive into the creation of the rings themselves. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to secondageatbaldmove.com, and we'll get to those questions on the final episode, which will be a Q&A. If you want to talk Tolkien with us sooner than that, you can always join the Bald Move Discord server. There's a link in the show description and over at baldmove.com. And be sure to get all the Bald Move and Lorehounds coverage of Rings of Power by subscribing to the Doug Too Deep podcast feed. We're going to be releasing exclusive content on this feed, so you don't want to miss out. Click on the link in the show notes or search for Doug Too Deep in your podcast application of choice. So let's get started with a discussion of Tolkien's impact on modern fantasy. Yeah. So this is an interesting topic, John, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know how much you are steeped in the world of modern fantasy. Love it. But... Yeah. So as I was doing the research on this topic, I was really kind of blown away at, at how wide an impact that Tolkien has had on, on the genre. Now, he didn't really invent the the genre of fantasy as, as such. I mean, obviously, there was a lot of um, Western European fantasy stories that were published of Tolkien. Some of the things I didn't realize is that The Wizard of Oz was written in 1900. Yeah. Peter Pan was in 1904. Call of Cthulhu was 28. Conan the Barbarian, 1932. So there was plenty of fantasy already out and about, uh, you know, when Tolkien started to write The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. But I, th 
you know, um, and obviously there's a lot of mythology that's present in most human civilizations. And a lot of that mythology, though, is like really rooted in, you know, creation myths and explaining the world and interpreting the world. And I guess, I don't know, do you know this name, George MacDonald? I've heard of him. I I don't know much about him, but I, I know he's he's one of those early fantasy guys. Yeah, so apparently he's credited as the, as the guy who created the modern f- sense of fantasy as a genre as we know about it. And I don't know much else about him. There's a he's written a number of books. But uh, uh he was um he preceded Tolkien and um who's the other guy? The Narnia guy. Um CS Lewis. CS Lewis, yeah. So he had a lot of influence on those guys uh and everyone else, but um I, I didn't read re- uh, too much about him. So anyway, it's an interesting starting point if, if you know, you, the listener, are interested in digging more into the, the roots, the deeper roots of fantasy. So I think what Tolkien really did do, though, was he set the stage or, or set a baseline for us for what we know as today as, as Western European epic high fantasy. Oh, yeah. Yep. And um, I kind of, you know, as I was doing my research, I kind of broke it down and I was looking at various aspects uh, of what that means and, and how, how we see it uh, in play in the genre. And one of the areas is, is certainly within, you know, creating uh, fantastical creatures and, and different races. So like things like elves and dwarves existed in, in other mythologies, but it was Tolkien, like when we think of elves now as tall and fey and pointy ears and all that kind of stuff, that was Tolkien. Right. Yeah. He he sort of separated it from the classic, like almost fairy-like creature and made it into this enhanced man instead of being mm-hmm. uh, instead of being this mystical creature entirely an interesting uh, factoid too uh, apparently in 1970 uh, we'll talk about D&D in a little bit but like in 1977 he got a um, uh, Gary Gygax got a letter from Tolkien's lawyers to say stop using the words hobbits and other things like <laughs> gotta that gotta do so, halfling now um, that's, that's right um, another thing that I found really interesting was that the sense of Epic fantasy was really a, a Tolkien uh, development. The idea that the fate of the world rests on the shoulders of these heroes and these heroes being complex characters, mm-hmm. not just simple avatars for, you know, heroism or steadfastness or, or whatever, but actually complex people. And so the idea that the world itself that he created had a seriousness to it. Um, A lot of previous fantasy was frivolous or irreverent. um, But with Tolkien's world, like there were serious stakes. He was putting serious stakes involved. uh, And, you know, the, the, the life and death of whole worlds um, was really injected into the, into the storylines. Yeah. I mean, you could see that in the works of like Robert Jordan with the wheel of time, which the first wheel of time book is basically just a rehashing of the Lord of the Rings reskinned. Um, it, it branches off later, but you see it in his work, you see it in the modern works of Brandon Sanderson, in a ton of different fantasy works now. This whole, the fate of the world is on our shoulders is is definitely a Tolkien influence. And, you know, and within that, another point that I, you know, of, of his uh, influence is in this world building mm. on this epic scale. Uh, you know, one, one of the words that people use to talk about Tolkien's world is legendarium, Mm -hmm. right? There's just such a huge body of work that it's like, how do you, how do you describe that? And that 
resulted from the complexity and completeness of the world that Tolkien was describing. The fine-grained details, the in-world creation mythos, long and complex lore and history, like no one had ever really done that prior to Tolkien uh, writing uh, about Middle-earth. Right, like you look at the world of Middle-earth and there's a whole history in everywhere you look. You go to this area where Aragorn and Frodo and everybody are walking and they're like, oh yeah, this ancient Numenorean civilization lived here. You go to Saruman's fortress at Orthanc and you find out that that was from an ancient civilization too. So there's always this deep layer of the world being lived in. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's a really interesting thing too, because while Tolkien created language, which is another one of these uh, Tolkien, you know, in Tolkien's impacts on modern fantasy is is the use of constructed languages. Mm-hmm. I think we we talked about uh, previously a little bit is is how like Tolkien invented a language and then he had to create a world to <laughs> in, have that language right. present in. But if we look now at, at a lot of the the modern uh, works, you know, we see constructed languages all over the place. I mean, Klingon, Dothraki, and Foundation on the, the new Apple TV series, they invented two whole new languages just for that. Um, and so I think the, the, the use of a constructed language is almost like a, a, a mark. How well has this uh, uh, property or author developed their world? Oh, they invented a language? <laughs> oh, okay. But that was a Tolkien thing. Like, nobody had done that. Right. I mean, people had invented languages before, but nobody had created a world so that a language could inhabit it. Yeah, and, and one interesting thing you see in Tolkien compared to a lot of modern authors is that a lot of modern authors create phrases and things like that, words right. in, their, yeah. in their books, and then there isn't a full language until it becomes a screen adaptation. And then they hire somebody mm. whose job it is to create languages. But Tolkien was... You know, from the beginning, this is the language and this is how it works. And so I think that he was kind of unique in that regard. I mean, look at George R. R. Martin, Dothraki and um, High Valerian were not complete languages when he wrote those phrases into A Song of Ice and Fire. But on Game of Thrones, they hired somebody to take those phrases and take those bits and pieces and create something usable in dialogue. Whereas I think, correct, I mean, shed some light on this, but I think like Quenya, what, did he write Quenya, the elven language prior to, you know, when did that get created as opposed to, oh, we're going to wait for the studio to give us the cash to hire the linguist to write the language. Right. No, he, he was creating Quenya when he was working on the the Lord of the Rings. And before that, too, he he based it on, I forgot what language, check the last episode. Uh, and, <laughs> um <laughs> And he was basing it on real-world languages, sort of, but he was also creating his own unique spin on it and creating his own alphabet. So he was really the mastermind behind everything in a way that I don't even know if anyone has replicated since. Right, exactly. So another um, really interesting facet is is the moral complexity of the heroes and of other characters in the world. You know, up until this time, you know, as I mentioned before, yeah, we might have had some interesting characters at Peter Pan or Wizard of Oz. We have these very simplistic characters, people who are transported into another world and they're trying to get back. Uh, or even with Conan, you just got a guy who's just driven by, you know, um, sort of base, you know, uh, motivations. 
But in Tolkien's world, the motivations of the characters and the and the complexity of the characters is rich and it's full, and you we see characters struggling with moral choices and and conflicting motivations, and that hadn't really been present uh, in any kind of fantasy up until then. Yeah, and you know it's funny because the biggest criticism I always hear of Tolkien is it's too simple, it's too good and evil. And I, I, I'm like, have you even read it? First of all, right. <laughs> second, have you dived deeper than just the base Lord of the Rings? But even in the Lord of the Rings, you know, you have Frodo going, well, Gollum's a bad dude. He's, you know, Bilbo should have killed him. And Gandalf says, who are you to decide if he lives or dies? Can, you know, many people mm. who deserve life get death. Can you give it to them? If not, then don't be so quick to judge. That's a complex moral statement on totally who gets to decide who lives and dies and, and you just right. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, and and that's an uh, that tails into another uh, impact, which is the weaving of these different. And I'm putting sort of air quotes around literary themes around these points and counterpoints and and contrasts between characters. Well, you've got you know uh, Boromir and um, uh, I'm blanking on his brother's name, uh, Faramir, right? And and you've got uh, Frodo and um, um, Sam. And you've got, and and Gollum, and so you get these points and counterpoints, and these moral issues that are twisting around each other. And I almost feel it's almost like Baroque classical music, <laughs> where you've got these like varying patterns rolling over each other constantly, creating this really rich weave. Again, not present prior, you know, elements of this were around, but not to the degree that Tolkien um, uh, developed it. Right, he's synthesizing this whole big stew. <laughs> yeah. And then um, the trilogy format, right? Now, that really wasn't Tolkien himself. That seemed to be his publisher who wanted to do, you know, breaking things up into threes. Oh, yeah. He but did not like, want know. to do a trilogy. No way. Mm. He was not happy about it. Um, but really, it was, how are we going to sell this book? It's going to if we if we publish this as one work, it's going to be so expensive that nobody's going to buy it. Right. <laughs> Who's going to sit down and read it? <laughs> right. This big, heavy thing. Yeah. And just like they, they wanted it to be, if they put it into a store, somebody's going to pay whatever amount is the normal amount of uh. books. They don't want it to be three times the price of a regular book because nobody's ever going to buy it in their opinion. Right. And then you look now, we see like, say, with the Expanse books, that's a trilogy of trilogies, right? You know, mm-hmm. you've got three, you know, three threes. That is a very popular model of of de, de, of uh, delivering um, these kinds of complex world building stories. Yeah, and I will say Tolkien sort of opened the door for more people to be more liberal about their book lengths. I mean, if you look at the Wheel of Time again, it's one of my favorite series, mm-hmm. so I will bring it up too much. Right. Uh, if, no spoilers you, there on uh, future coverage. Right. <laughs> if you look at the Wheel of Time, though, the first book is like nine hundred to a thousand pages. It, it, that would never have happened <laughs> if Tolkien right. hadn't push this whole huge universe thing. And lastly, you know, looking at how Tolkien pushed these boundaries. So yeah, and we've got the effect on on the written word, but then we look at at TV and movies, right? And we had some very early animation adaptations as we talked about before with some of Tolkien's work, but just the idea of of being able to, you know, throw a spell and swing a sword that getting out into the TV and movie properties. But then would you have would we have ever been able to create role playing games or even a lot of video games? Would George Lucas ever have dared to make Willow? 
<laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Very funny. Um, I can't even think of the last time I've seen Will. I might have seen it just that one time <laughs> moved on. But, you know, when we look at Dungeons and Dragons or Warcraft or Warhammer, you know, or, you know, uh, how many, you know, video, I'm not a big of, a, as big a video game player uh, as I am a active role-playing game player. Um, all of those things, that, that the stage was set by Tolkien for, for that to happen. Yeah. Elder Scrolls, things like that. Uh, Dragon mm-hmm. Age, all these things are super influenced by Tolkien. Language, characters, uh, fantastical creatures, all the things that we were talking about before. Uh, and back on that D&D side note, which I sort of um, flagged earlier, uh, this is a, some very interesting stuff. Apparently, Gary Gygax, who is the, one of the main people who, who is the real driver behind D&D and, and who was sort of um, credited as, as inventing it, apparently he was not a very big fan of Tolkien. And he actually thought his work, and it, this, these are written down words, <laughs> is that he thought his, that Tolkien was shallow and boring. <laughs> So, <laughs> which um, I've heard from other and, people too. He's not alone. I mean, it, it's not it, Tolkien is very popular, but there are criticism levied criticisms levied against him that it doesn't have the moral complexity of something like a Song of Ice and Fire. Now, I disagree with that, and if you've been following along with us by now, you probably disagree with that too. But <laughs> right. I, it is a criticism that people still levy at Tolkien. Right, right. So again, I, I think. You know, stepping back uh, with all of this, it's not that Tolkien invented fantasy, but the genre. He took the genre further than it ever had been before. And I don't know necessarily, as as we've said, like, has anyone ever come close to the depth and and complexity and um, um, wholeness that Tolkien put into Middle Earth? And so when we understand western european epic fantasy Mm -hmm. how we expect it to function and the kinds of themes and um interplays that we we expect there to be that that's all tolkien yeah and i think that other authors have done some things better and some things not as good as tolkien uh, you know he, but the point is that we judge don't we i mean you're you judging off of right right right? he's the baseline yeah yeah so Okay, well, I think that wraps up our conversation on on Tolkien's impact on um, on the genre of fantasy. Uh, and now we wanted to touch base on a couple of themes. You want to take us forward on that, John? Yeah, sure. So the themes that we wanted to discuss today were the desire to dominate and the importance of intent in creation. The second one sounds very interesting. That's you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, Why are you creating something? We've discussed this before with the creation of the dwarves with Mm Alay. You know, he had this Binding of Isaac moment where he's saying, I'm not I'm not creating them to usurp you, Eru Iluvatar. Remember, that's the creator God. Right. I'm creating them out of the desire to create life and the desire to create beauty and the desire to be paternal. Mm. So intent has always been something that's central to the quality of the creation. And as we go through this and we look at the way different rings are created, whether they're created by Sauron or by elves under the influence of Sauron or by an elf free from the influence of Sauron, that's going to matter a lot. And even go back to Feanor, we discussed him in the elves chapter and how he created these jewels with the intent to hoard them and keep them. And that really backfired. I was just thinking about that. 
Right. Yeah, because he was like, oh, they're mine, right. my precious kind of thing. And, and that let corruption uh, begin to arise. Right. And then if we go back to the desire to dominate, that's something that Sauron is big on. You know, he is just mm. super pissed at the elves and super pissed at men. And <laughs> he wants to rule the world. You know, he wants to be the guy. And that's going to be an issue. Mm hmm. Great. Okay, well, let's take a little break. And then when we come back, we will get into um, some lore and history around the creation of the rings themselves. So, John, let's talk about some rings. I've been really fascinated with this topic uh, for a while, and that was one of the things, like, way back when, reading the books and, you know, seeing the Peter Jackson movies, I'm, I've always been like, but what about the other rings? Yeah, they're a little bit elusive in The Lord of the Rings. They're all, they're all about the one ring, and then you know about the Nazgul with the nine rings, but the rest of them aren't really discussed all that much. No, yeah. So, so let's talk about how they get created, but I think you've got a little background for us first. We got to take a step back quick. Well, we are the lorehounds after all, <laughs> after all right? We've got to like always take a step back to get to go forward. We got to talk about Sauron. So, don't Ooh, watch Encanto, bum, bum, we don't bum. talk about Sauron. Um <laughs> My daughter has Encanto on on uh, <laughs> continuous loop right now, so it's a good movie. You know, it's. it's, it's I, I can get behind Lin Manuel songs, right? Like my wife and I are singing them all the time, and it's like, oh, these are good songs. Lin Manuel should continue to write music and not sing the songs. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy his songs. Anyway, amazing. Yeah. We do talk about Sauron here. <laughs> Let's crack it up again, yes. Because he's the big bad of the Second Age. Yes. Now, we saw him with the Numenorians, right? We had fun there. Mm-hmm. And now we have to talk about what he did to the elves. Yeah. He does not like elves, needless to say. Right. Remember, we talked about the fall of Morgoth at the end of the First Age, and I was cast off into the void. And the initial defeat of Morgoth was because of the coming of the elves. The Valar said, hey, you know, we want to protect Middle-earth for the elves, so we're going to get rid of Morgoth. And uh, so Sauron never forgave the elves for this. He was like, oh, man, these guys, if they just hadn't come, we had a good thing going, and mm. they ruined it. So he's got a real grudge for them. Yep. So Sauron, remember, is one of the Maiar, and he is, you know, so one of the holy ones, but one of the lesser holy ones, and... Right, he's like a junior, or not even junior, just like a lesser-powered angel. Yeah, they're the, the sidekick, sort of. But they, they have a lot of power, too. They're just not as powerful as the Valar. And each one of them ends up attached to one of the Valar, or, like, you know, sort of linked with one of the Valar. Was it Gandalf of Maiar? He was. Okay. And he is linked to Manwe, who is, mm -hmm. you know, the chief, the head of the Valar, is the right. king. Um, but... Ma but Sauron, and Saruman mm -hmm. too, but Sauron is who we're focused on here. He's linked to Aule, the smithing god, who, remember, created the dwarves. Oh, interesting. So he, so he, Morgoth wasn't even his first boss. 
He was not. He was not. Oh. He was really attached to Aule, so he's got okay. big smithing energy. Well, as we do. <laughs> and so that explains his sort of fascination with rings here. Mm-hmm. But he didn't stay with Aule for long. He pretty immediately becomes the chief lieutenant of Morgoth. He appears okay. really early in the Silmarillion. He can take a bunch of forms. In his early days, he can appear as a terrible great lord like we know him today. Uh, but he could also appear fair to elves and men. And sometimes he could appor- uh, appear as a wolf, as a giant wolf. Oh. He was the lord of werewolves in the Silmarillion. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. And in, in the books, they, they have this scene in the Lord of the Rings books uh, that's cut from the movies where the Fellowship is going up against these wolves that are the agents of Sauron. So this is oh. a through line even through the Lord of the Rings if, you, if you're a book fan. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So... Sauron remembered that his master was originally thwarted for the sake of the elves, and he never forgave right. the elves for it. So at the end of the first stage, when Sauron is initially alone and Morgoth is cast into the void, Sauron's like, oh, this is not a great situation. Maybe I should go and realign myself with the Valar because they seem to be winning whatever war is happening. Right. <laughs> so he okay. sends them a feeler text. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> You up? He reaches out to one of the other Maiar that he knows, and he says, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about coming back. Uh, how's the vibe over there? Mm. And he says, I can't help you here, man. You're going to have to go to Manwe. You're going to have to plead for his mercy. You're going to have to probably go to trial. And uh, Sauron's like, that sounds like it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to do that. Sad face emoji. Yeah. <laughs> so let's imagine this nice text conversation between Sauron and the Maiar. <laughs> Somebody's, has somebody done that out there? I would love to, to see, see that. That would be great. I don't know. Send it in. Secondageofballmove.com. Yeah, right? <laughs> and so Sauron has sort of by default returned to evil. And he's like, ah, well, better make the most of my time in Middle Earth now that I can't return. And uh, there's these elves here. And they're pretty messed up from the first age, but they're starting to rebuild civilizations, and uh, I think I'm going to go cause some mischief. Dun-dun-dun! All right, so Sauron is up in Adam, and what, so he heads, doesn't he head back to Numenor? So Numenor is still around at this point. Okay. Uh, We've backed up a little bit, because we need to get the elves back to the same point as the men. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So Numenor is still around, but the elves are settled in a few places in Middle-earth. So that's where we can talk about where we might be in the beginning of the series of the Rings of Power. Right. So we're going to be speculating a little bit about some possible locations they could be pulling from the books. What else is there to do? We don't have a show yet. Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So where, where are we going? Well, we've got Beleriand. You mm-hmm. don't really have to remember that too much. It's uh, That's the main area, but the city that we're going to be concerned about, the region that we're going to be concerned about is called Linden, and that mm-hmm. contains the Grey Havens, which you'll remember okay, from the Lord of the Rings. Right. That's where they get on the boats. That's where they get on the boats. That's the, the port city. Okay. And most of the elves that remain in Middle-earth, the Noldor that remain in Middle-earth, remember those are the deep elves. Those are the descendants of uh, Finway who are smithing sort of focused. So, and, and a quick reminder, the Noldor, did they make it to see the trees, or are these the ones that never made it over? They saw the trees, they came back to hunt the Silmarils, 
and oh, right. most of their civilizations were destroyed in the first age. Right. And there's a callback to your right. There's a callback to your chart that you that we've got posted in the show notes from the the last episode. Yeah, go ahead and check out the chart or re-listen to the last episode if you want a reminder on more details of the Noldor. Right. So Linden is led by mm-hmm. Gilgalad who's basically mm-hmm. the king of the Noldor at this point. Right. Um, and he has as his sort of second-hand man Elrond, who, you who know, know. long-time fans will recognize. Yep. And uh, they are in charge of Linden, and they're in charge of the Grey Havens. We also have, uh, with the Sindar Elves mostly, this area called Lothlorien. Uh, it has Sindar Elves and Sylvan Elves. Sylvan Elves will definitely take part in the Rings of Power series. We know we have a named Sylvan Elf uh, that okay. they've made up for the series. In the cast list, which is floating around on the internet. Right. Yeah. And right now it's mostly ruled by the Sindar Elves until later when Galadriel is going to take over a little bit. So we should okay. also mention Galadriel quick. Mm-hmm. I always so. like mentioning Galadriel. I love Galadriel. She's one fan favorite. Yeah, no Kate Blanchett this time, though. Oh. So sad. Anyway. Um, so he didn't know, Tolkien did not know really what he wanted to do with Galadriel. Mm. He, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, he's described as a sort of majestic beauty, this ancient beauty. And in his extended writings, especially if you look at Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-earth, he's really alternating between this majestic beauty um, and this warrior princess kind of thing. And mm-hmm. that's what we're sort of seeing in the Rings of Power. I'm down for that. I'm down for some complex uh, warrior uh, majestic beauty. That works for me. Yeah, I don't really understand why people got up in arms about her portrayal in a lot of the promo materials. Uh huh. I, I think that it's interesting to have a character evolve over time, and I think that that interpretation is totally valid and in line with Tolkien's interpretation of her. Well, and this goes back to the the point about complex characters in a complex world. I mean, that's who we are as people, and, and you know, if you want a fairy tale, go read a fairy tale. This is not that. This is fantasy. Yeah, and I always also think about Brandon Sanderson's rule of cool, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's cool, <laughs> you <laughs> right. should do it. You should find yeah. an excuse to do it yeah. when you're writing. Um, right on. So lastly, I just want to talk about Eriador, which is okay. the, the region. That's the region that most people are familiar with when they think of Middle-earth, because that contains the Shire, that contains Rivendell, and um, this is where sort of the last Noldor city is in this area. Okay. Um, it's founded by Galadriel, and it's called Eregion. Mm-hmm. And it contains sort of the last remnants of the Noldor other than the ones that are in Linden or already out west. Okay. Eventually, she cedes this city to Celebrimbor, who's the grandson of Feanor, who, remember, he made the Silmarils. Okay. This is right next to Khazad-dûm, Moria, mm-hmm. um, which at the time of the Lord of, of the Rings of Power is a thriving kingdom. So we're going to see that ruined uh, mine of Moria as a real active, in its glory, heyday kingdom. Wow. That's going to be cool to see some of this stuff that, yeah, is, is in decay and in ruin, but actually alive. And yeah, because we see those big vistas and statues and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, like what was there before? That's going to be very cool to see. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. Awesome. And lastly, we just have Rivendell, but it doesn't exist yet. They might, they might retcon it. They might change it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time that we're talking about where 
Sauron is just establishing the rings. Rivendell doesn't exist yet. Interesting. Okay, so we'll see. We'll track that to see if in um, later seasons of Rings of Power um, that actually gets established. Yeah, it's established in the Second Age and during this conflict with Sauron. So okay. that will make sense if they develop it. It will be a little bit against lore if they have it at the beginning of the series. Cool. Okay, so back to Sauron and the forging of the rings. Uh, so Sauron wants to infiltrate these elves, right? Mm-hmm. To get revenge and dominate. Right. He has this desire to dominate. So he comes up with this plot of, I'm going to sort of be nice with the elves, I'm going to infiltrate them with a little bit of honey, and I'm going to try to deceive them and not make them realize who I am, because they know that I was the chief lieutenant of Morgoth. Okay. So he goes first to Linden, and he goes to the Grey Havens, and he sees Gilgalad. And Gilgalad and Elrond are like, um, you seem kind of sus. <laughs> Dude smells. Yeah, they are not a fan of him, and Sauron says, uh, you know what, it's not working out, I'll move on, there's other places to go. Right, and he's in disguise when he's going right. to... Right, he's taken on a different form there. Right. So next he takes on the name of Anatar, the mm-hmm. Lord of Gifts, oh. and he goes to Eregion. Okay. So this is where Celebrimbor is ruling, remember. Right. The grandson of the guy who made the Silmarils. Right. So the, he's the greatest smith of his age, Celebrimbor. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, a natural place for uh, Sauron to go since he has that smithing background as well. Yeah, and Celebrimbor is known as being this really kind man. He's he's not his grandfather at all. He's a good dude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Sauron goes here, and he says to the elves, you know, I can help you with the craft of ring-making. Cool. And I know you guys like making beautiful things, and what's more beautiful than the rings? Mm-hmm. Perfect circle and all that. So he teaches them a special method of making rings that includes magic that binds the rings they make to Sauron. So they make nine for the men and seven for the dwarves at this point. And Sauron has a hand in this making. And so it's tainted. So does does he teach him? He teaches him how to weave magic into the rings, but obviously not this secret sauce that's tainting the rings. He's not doing it well, overtly. He teaches them how to make the rings generally. And he includes in that teaching sort of a spell, I guess. It's not described in great detail, but some kind of magic part of this method that binds the rings to him. So, like, uh, right, like, and I don't know what this ring, does, right. but I, he, I, this is the recipe. This is, it says, put this in there, so I put it in there, even though I don't necessarily know what it's doing. Well, Sarah knows what it's doing. Well, yeah, um, of course. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, sorry, yes. So, so the elves don't really know what it's doing, but they're. he's like, no, the, this is an essential part to mm-hmm. this ring making, to make these right. powerful rings. Cool. So he's telling them, you know, these rings will give you enhanced abilities. So he gives nine, they, they make nine for men and seven for dwarves. Yeah, well, Sauron gives them to, to nine men and seven dwarves. Okay. And uh, Celebrimbor was suspicious of this Anatar guy. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, he, he seemed to came, come out of nowhere. He knows this ring-making method. I'm not sure if I trust it, but this, this ring-making method does seem pretty good. Mm. It's just that I don't really trust him specifically. So he, in secret, forges three more rings and these are the most powerful of all of these rings other than the one ring and he does this in secret and Sauron finds out about it but he doesn't hand them over okay and Sauron didn't wasn't involved in making those so he doesn't necessarily have the same power over the elven rings 
Right. So the ra- the one ring can still control the elven rings. Okay. But Sauron directly cannot influence the ring bearers. Okay, got it. All right, so let's so the nine rings for men, where did they go? Some of them went to the Numenorians. Mm-hmm. I think I believe three went to Numenorians, and the rest were going to men of Middle Earth. Um, and they give the men who receive them great wealth, great power. Uh, they they have these great, powerful, dominating lives, and then they live longer, and they keep fading and fading, and they're weak, and they're just dominated at a certain point. And Sauron eventually takes the rings back from the men, and they're oh. just completely o- under his control at this point. Interesting. So the ring wraiths that we see in in the movies and in the books don't act aren't actually wearing rings they're just con- they they're they're what is left over after the ring has consumed them they're so far gone that they're they're basically all spirit now you know they're wow they okay. can't really you know they're invisible in the in the lore um right. they're only visible because they're wearing robes cloaks right yeah interesting right so they're they're barely existing now but their souls won't be let go by uh, Sauron and remember the gift of men they have to die eventually but Sauron is indefinitely postponing that death wow right and so he's got total control over them right yeah all right so we've got seven for the dwarves but there's a but there for the dwarves yeah the dwarves are a little a little bit hardier and maybe this is because they were created by Ale, the smithing god uh, maybe it's because they were just a little sturdier in general, but mm-hmm. they're not really able to be turned to shadows. They are really hard to dominate. They're mostly interested in wealth, not power. Interesting. So uh, I think you have a quote about what happened with those dwarven rings. Right, yeah. Something that you pulled up from the Silmarillion um, we've got here. It is said that the foundation of each of the seven hordes of the dwarf kings of old was a golden ring. But all those hordes long ago were plundered, and the dragons devoured them. And of the seven rings, some were consumed in fire, and some Sauron recovered. Right. So these rings did not succeed in dominating the dwarves. Um, We don't know exactly where they went. It's possible that by the time of the Lord of the Rings, some of them were in Moria, and uh, or at least that was suspected by some of the dwarves, uh, but we don't really know the fate of them. Sauron got some, some of them were lost. Right, because we never see any evidence of the dwarven rings. Right. Yeah. Um, they were mostly duds, basically. Okay, like, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> as as okay. far as their original purpose to dominate. Right, right. Yeah, they didn't work. They're, they kind of, uh, eh, yeah, it, it helped the dwarves more maybe than, than it helped Sauron. Right. All right, so we've got uh, three... El- three elven rings. Three elven rings. Uh, and this is probably the most interesting part of ring lore. Okay. Uh, because these ones are very unique. Remember, they're made by Celebrimbor, and so they're not subject to the direct will of Sauron. So when Sauron put on the one ring for the first time, the elves immediately sensed that something was wrong. And they sensed Sauron's presence, and they realized who Anatar really was. It was Sauron. Uh-huh. Um, and that they had made a terrible mistake in trusting this guy. So Celebrimbor had sent these rings to Gilgalad in Linden and to Galadriel in Lothlorien uh, for safekeeping. Uh, Gilgalad had two, Galadriel had one, and uh, so Celebrimbor didn't want them because he knew Sauron was coming for him. Okay, right, and he knew, yeah, and, and Sauron knew 
his jam. Like he knew where he was and and had worked with him and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, they're at greater risk with Celebrimbor. Right. So he's sending them for safekeeping and there they're going to have to lie because we'll see in the next episode, things don't go too well for our good friend Kel. Okay. So we got three rings and the and the unique thing about the elven rings is that they're actually named and we can actually trace some of their whereabouts through all of the Tolkien works, right? Yeah, and I'm just going to disclaim here, there's some spoilers for the end of The Lord of the Rings. Here. Okay, right. I mean, <laughs> we've been doing that this entire time, but like this is like extra bit of where the rings are at the end of The Lord of the Rings. Right, yeah. Books and movies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So warned. So we have Nenya, which is the Ring of Water. Mm -hmm. It's possessed by Galadriel, and she uses it to enhance and protect Lothlorien. Right, which is how Lothlorien's able to really um, stand to 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 be as strong uh, an enclave as it is because her using the ring. Right. The, remember, the elves are beginning to fade, but that fading can be combated. This fading can be sort of mitigated by the magic of the rings. Okay. And so Galadriel is using that power. Now, remember, she can't use it while Sauron has the, has the ring or Sauron can control her. But if Sauron doesn't exist or isn't, sorry, isn't in possession of the one ring, now she can use it freely. Got it. Right. And we know that no, he doesn't. He's trying to find the ring. That's the whole <laughs> the whole plot of the of the other uh, of the Lord of the Rings. Or, yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. OK, so that's Nenya. And then we have Vilya, the Ring of Air. Okay. And that originally went to Gilgalad, uh, but Gilgalad is going to pass that along to Elrond. And this ring may provide some elemental powers. Remember, we have the horses in the water, yes. uh, in the river, and things like that. So that's all Vilya is doing. Okay. And the third one? And lastly, we have Narya, the Ring of Fire. And this is where our bit of a spoiler is, so jump out if you haven't <laughs> <laughs> So it's originally possessed by Gilgalad, again. Um, he entrusts it to Círdan the Shipwright, uh -huh. uh, who's one of the Sindar elves, who's a big leader in the Grey Havens. Um, and after Gilgalad dies, Círdan decides to keep it, because, you know, who else is going to have it? Right. Uh, but later on, Gandalf, when he comes to Middle-earth, and we'll discuss the coming of the wizards later, Gandalf meets Círdan, and Círdan is like, I'm pretty sure you're one of those guys from over there. So I'm going to pass this along to you because I feel like you could use this better than I could. Wow. So Gandalf has had a ring the whole time. Pretty much, yeah, the whole time in The Lord of the Rings. Wild. And uh, the, the power of this ring really mm -hmm. explains a lot of Gandalf's ability, which is it has the power to kindle the fire in people's hearts. And so when he's going up to Bilbo and Frodo and saying, hey, it's time to get up. It's time to go on an adventure. That's right. <laughs> how he's so successful in sort of awakening their took side. Right. Interesting. And that's also um, at, towards the, the final battle when he's um, – uh, what's the city that they're in? I'm fading. My brain is fading. Gondor. In Gondor. In, in Minas Tirith. Yeah, in Minas Tirith. He's able to rally people as he's riding around on, on Shadowfax. Right, or even look at in Rohan when he's yes. fighting the influence of Saruman with Theoden. Right, right, and he even says, be gone, you know, and he sort of uses that power voice, which could have been in, um, enhanced by the ring. Right. Awesome. Okay, cool. All right, so that's seven for, well, nine for the men, seven for the dwarves, and three for the elves. We have one ring left to discuss. One ring to rule them all. Mm. So that's Forges in the Fires of Mount Doom in secret. 
He'd never told the elves that he was making it. Okay. Um, and Sauron pours a large portion of his essence, of his power, into the ring. Right. So this is his, we, when we talk about these, cre- well, I mean, they're not elves, so they don't operate the same way, but we have like this spiritual essence that seems to be sort of the gas that drives a lot of creation in uh, Middle-earth. Yeah, and Sauron doesn't need to make the ring, and mm-hmm. he doesn't gain any power by creating the ring. But what he does is he's focusing his power mm. on the power to dominate. Okay. And so it makes him perhaps less effective in some things, like maybe creation. Right. But it makes him much more effective in the power to dominate because it's sort of, sort of just a focusing point he's aiming now. Right. Uh, but the weakness is now if that's if he loses the ring he loses almost all of his power. And that's why we see him in this weakened state in the Lord of the Rings. Right, where he's incorporeal. Right, and he can he can still regain a lot of his power over time, which is why he's becoming more powerful over mm-hmm. the course of the Lord of the Rings and over the course of the Third Age generally. But this is what makes him not able to realize his power to dominate. Right. And the ring itself has a will. Yeah, well, because it contains Sauron's will, so it can, you know, change sizes as it and it wants to find its master. Mm-hmm. It has that fun poem inscribed on it, and it mm-hmm. and uh, it's indestructible, other than being destroyed in Mount Doom, as we know from the Lord of the Rings. Right, and then so when other people are wearing any of the other uh, sets of rings, because he put that secret sauce in the recipe, it gives him like a. Uh, um, uh, access to those rings and to be able to dominate the will of anyone wearing those rings. Right, exactly. I should also mention that the power of those other rings ends up tied to the one ring. And so that's why you see at the end of the Lord of the Rings, uh, the elves have to leave because once the one ring is destroyed, the elven rings, even though they weren't totally tied to the one ring, do lose their power. Interesting. Okay, good. All right. Well, I feel like I got a lot more understanding now of the rings, and um, this is obviously going to play a big part in the the, <laughs> the show because that's what it's called, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. So, what's up for chapter five? Well, next we've got to discuss the War of the Ring, and to get there, we're going to talk about how Sauron attacked the elves, and then how elves and men got together to besiege Barad-dûr. And that gives us a great opportunity to talk about Tolkien's wartime experience Mm -hmm. and um, the weakness of the will of men and uh, the theme of loss as well. So that should be a really good chapter. All right. Well, we'll see you then. The Second Age podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondage at baldmove.com. For more Rings of Power content, subscribe to Dug Too Deep on your favorite podcast app. Ad-free versions of this and all other Bald Move podcasts can be yours by going to patreon.com slash baldmove. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works 
and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>